Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wine, Women, and Words. And as you notice today, it's myself, Diana, and my wonderful friend, Eddie Louise, who is a, <laughs> she's a fantastic author. And one of my reasons for bringing her on here for everybody to see is because I always love asking her what she's doing because she has wonderful stories about what she's currently doing. And there's always a new project. Every time I talk to her, there's always something new. So yeah. Eddie, talk about your new projects. <laughs> okay. So uh, right now I have two obsessions going. The first is a steampunk podcast. It's uh, rather a mashup of uh, Dr. Frankenstein meets quantum leap character in the podcast is a galvanist in the late 1800s. A galvanist is someone who applies electricity to the human body. And she's basically attempting to do what Dr. Frankenstein did and reanimate dead flesh. She electrocutes herself and she flings her consciousness through space and time. The thing is that once a body has a consciousness though, it cannot accept a second one. So she can only go into dead bodies. So she ends up in places like battlefields where there's lots of dead bodies handy for her to reanimate. And then when she dies again in her new life, she's back to the lab. She's discovered time travel. Continually electrocutes herself in every single episode and her best friend, uh, the professor Erasmus Savant, and she electrocutes the two of them. They're flung through space and time to somewhere. They have various adventures and then they die and they're back home. <laughs> so it's got a lot of shtick, to be honest, but it's really a chance because I'm passionate about history. And this way, every month I get to investigate a different era or time. So, so far we have done uh, the Napoleonic Wars, we've done um, the 1920s in New York City, we've done the Newsboy Strike actually in New York City, that one was really fun. Um, we've done uh, the Italian Renaissance as our Christmas episodes, writing one about Vikings. And you learn all sorts of wonderful things. Like for the longest time, of course, our male historians have us thinking that men are the warriors and women are the housewives. And it turns out, of course, in Viking culture that women were equally warriors and also they were merchants, that they often ran the trading business. So um, that makes it really fun to kind of turn our idea of history on its head. So every month I get to write something silly and I get to Google things like, how fast do you die when you catch the bubonic plague? <laughs> That's one of the things I love about writers is it's, you know, um, always ask, you know, don't look at my search history. I've yeah. got a search history of a serial killer. You don't want to know my search history. <laughs> the, things, the things that we research, it's really disgusting and awful, but fun. Um, so anyway, yeah. if you're interested in the podcast, check it out at www.sageandsavant.com. So it's come up on the first of every month, although here in December we do have an episode on the first and on the 15th as a Christmas special. And um, then every month on the first we'll bring up new episodes, and it is a serial, which means that Things, you know, you want to listen from the first story so that you can get the ongoing plot and the underlying thing that's happening with it. Oh, neat. Very cool. Yes. Yeah, see, like everybody, like I said, Eddie has the most interesting stories and the most interesting projects that we learn about. So. <laughs> I have to be bored. I have to entertain myself, if nothing else. <laughs> Everybody asks me, how do you do it? How, how do you find the time? And it's like, well, this is what interests me, is writing and reading and doing all of this stuff. These are my hobbies. Um, I do you guys are watching television. I'm writing and watching television. Yeah, I never watch pointless TV. Either it's good, yeah. really makes me care, or it's turned off. Mm -hmm. And I never watch commercials because commercials are just wasted time. It's so funny. When I first met Eddie, she had just moved back from Europe, and her stance on commercials has lapsed. The American version of 
commercials have worn off on her because in Scotland, where she was living, they didn't have commercials because television is part of, you know, your, your taxes. So who needs commercials? Yeah. And so, yeah, you bring up the subject of commercials and television to Eddie and her husband and Chip, and they would freak out about it. And it was just like, oh, my God. It was, it was like, don't bring up the commercials. Whatever you do. When we first, when we first got back to the United States, we felt like we had to hide. <laughs> There's the television, and it really would creep us out because it felt like it was always shouting at us to buy things. It's uh -huh. amazing how your mindset gets affected by that constant noise of marketing. Uh -huh. And it was really apparent when we first came back from Scotland. Maybe it's time to go away again for a while. <laughs> if I'm getting too yeah, used to it. Yeah, well, it's funny when I first started dating um, Ryan at Comoverto's house and he and his dad would get all upset when the commercials would come on and they'd just grab the remote and they put it on you because they would get so upset that the commercials were louder than everything else. And like his dad only has one good ear. So he's really sensitive to sound because of that one ear. And so he could tell when the volume went up. And it was something I never realized before until they were like, well, just wait. If you really watch it, the volume will go up when the commercials go on. Yeah. So, you know, there it is. But um, there were a lot of wonderful things about living in Scotland. Uh -huh. And one of the most wonderful was the discovery of really amazing single malt whiskeys and scotch. Oh think that I hated whiskey but, but truthfully all I'd ever had was things like Seagram 7 and you know just like really low rent kind of Midwest and so um, going to Scotland I learned to enjoy really good scotch so I am drinking Vinny it's a single malt 14 year that was finished in a rum Oh, that's got to be. Promise not to drink all of it before we get together with you and Ryan, because <laughs> Ryan, I think this stuff is heaven. It, it finishes with the most delightful rum aftertaste oh. that is just like cotton candy, mm, and so that delicate. So delicious. So and I'm like, I just have my wine. I got my standard wine. Did I, so did you I ever see this wine glass? My epic wine glass. Everybody else who watches has seen. Um, but that yeah, is this is um, a friend who who's done it. So it's got the octopus there because yeah, that's my obsession right now. <laughs> and then both dogs. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, dogs and octopuses, two of my uh, four favorite animals. That um, is really epic. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. So yeah, and I discovered that I could fit a half a bottle of wine in this, which is awesome. And I, I was challenged during one episode to drink the whole glass, the whole half a bottle. So yeah. um, I, I completed the challenge. Of course, <laughs> of course you did. You don't shy from challenges like that. <laughs> no, you meet those challenges head on. There you do. And you say, yes, I will conquer you. <laughs> yes. Speaking <laughs> of challenges. You and I both write uh, for the National Novel Writing Month in November. My novel mm -hmm. this month was um, a challenge to write a book that centers on an old woman hero. But the old woman is not played for comedic effect. Mm. But she's treated as a serious hero the way that, say, Obi-Wan is treated or that Gandalf is treated. And mm -hmm. uh, because the only only books at all that have an old woman as a hero are Terry Pratchett, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, Granny, but Granny's completely paid, played for comedic effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm writing an epic fantasy with an 82-year-old center protagonist who is out to take down a corrupt government through the use of magic, but in a land where witches are burned for magic. So she's wanted, and if they find her, they're going to burn her. And so it's got a lot of serious political overtones and all this with this amazing kick-ass 82-year-old woman. <laughs> One of the things that's most fun about writing an 82-year-old woman 
has no filter. If she yeah, I love that too. I love that too. I have an 85 year old woman in my book and she is the grandmother and she's the monarch of this family. Cause my book is about, it's a historical fiction about this family in Monterey during world war two. And they're Italian, and so they get caught up in the Italian internment camp stuff. Um, during that time of World War II, they couldn't travel more than five miles from home. Um, political undertones and situations going on. And so with her, I've got her, her no filter is her comedic aspect of it. Yeah. Where she's, she's poking her granddaughter to go see this boy, or she's giving her son the bit of truth that he doesn't want to hear. She's, I love it. she's got that yeah she's got that comedic aspect to it but she's a truth teller in it but then also I go I take the opportunity to go back into her childhood a little bit what made her want to actually follow her son and his son's new wife to Italy and I get to touch base on how things are really were really bad there at that time and to shed some light on why people actually leave their countries of origin it's not just for a vacation most of the time. They actually have really bad home lives. So you get to see some of that, and you get to see some of her paranoia with the government coming in. And so that was really fun to do. Sometimes I feel like my book that I'm writing is almost like an ode to grandmothers. It's, it's gonna, if, once it gets published, <laughs> it's going to be dedicated to grandmothers, I think. <laughs> I love that. And there is something refreshing, again, about writing a character that not only has no filter, but also that doesn't automatically have a love interest. Yes. I started thinking, I tried to think of books that are female driven, where it's a female lead, love interest. Mm -hmm. Book after book, I thought, man, this is an amazing female lead. Yep, love interest. Amazing female lead. Yeah, love interest. And yeah, so there's no actual love interest. Like I thought about maybe a Terry, one of Terry Pratchett's books, the one where um, they go into Brazil, but no, there's technically a love interest in it. Exactly, right? I, I mean, I spent I, an hour racking through every book I've ever read trying to think of a book with a female lead have at least something mm -hmm. of a love interest. And so even if you look at something like Kristen Kishore's Graceling, Mm -hmm. Basically, it's the center of the book, and for the vast majority of the time, she's nowhere near Prince Poe. But Prince Poe is definitely her love interest, and as the other ones in the trilogy go on, his part becomes larger, and the love interest becomes more central. So even though in the first book he's barely there, mm -hmm. love interest that propels everything else. I'm like, women can do things without boys. <laughs> so writing this book, writing this book with the female that. It has nothing to do with men and nothing to do with boy stories, and her story is her own. It's really refreshing. That sounds really refreshing. I can't wait for that one to get published. And when it does, we'll have to read it on here and then have you as a guest and everything. <laughs> You've got it. You've yes. got it. Yes. Well, and then speaking of books and love interests, um, that gives us a good segue into the Zarina's legacy, which if I had the book up here, I would show everybody. Um, but it's Jennifer Lamb's book, and it's his second book, technically, that she's done, but it's still enough of its own story where it stands alone, so you can jump in on the second book, even though you haven't read the first book, and she gives you enough backstory where you don't have to skip through the pages, because I hate that when authors do that in a series, where you have, like, three or four pages of backstory, when really all you need is a paragraph or two here and there. Um, so she does a really good job of that. Uh, but that was one of the things I was... I didn't even realize it was a second book because there's not backstory, so that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. In the first one, um, Veronica, our main character, who, uh, Eddie, how much do you love her? Do you enjoy her? So, yeah. Yeah, she seems like she's going to be all right. At this beginning, she's pretty tentative. And yet, um, the, the first time you kind of get this idea of the fire that's inside of her is when she has the uh, meetup with the Monarchist Society woman, whose name I just forgot, but on the, in the first class, in the, in the presidential class, mm -hmm. and suddenly she's not going to be this pushover. She's not, because up to there, she's really shy. It's like you're not sure. I just got brought a refill of Angry Orchard. 
timid and she's really overwhelmed by this whole Romanoff claimant she's in and you she's not very regal very she doesn't seem like she really wants this very much and then that presidential class in the airplane and she starts just giving this little pushback and you're like oh fire and then as you see as that develops I so yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, she's got like that like ability. I, I love her. Um, yeah, I like the fact that the author's taken the time to do that. Yeah. You know, too often the trope of the strong female character, mm -hmm. vulnerability, mm -hmm. calling a battle or something, right? But I like that she exp expressed vulnerability at the beginning and then yeah. begins to show you her strength. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you have a lot of that vulnerability too, going back into the first book, where she's a historian um, professor, and the way that things are presented to her, uh, this whole Romanov mystery of how she finds herself and the way of being a claimant is through Michael, her somewhat love interest. In this book, it's more of a complicated oh, love interest. In the last book, he was more straightforward because he was the claimant in that book. And obviously, it's no secret, once you get to about five or six, you're going to find out that he lied about being a claimant. And he liked her. And you, and I love how, you know, you've got this conflict between the two of them and this internal conflict where she's vulnerable, but yet she can be really strong when, when push comes to shove. And she gets really strong in the last book, too. And I love, I love that conflict between the two of them where she wants to forgive him and... But she knows he manipulated her, but yet she still has feelings for him and her trying to resolve that and make sure that they can find this venue. Because it's, I hate the books where you have um, the really strong alpha males in the story. Yeah. Where you have this man who's just going to overpower the character. And you have somebody who's been strong up until this point and they get so overpowering that the girl's like, ah, whatever. They throw their hands up in the air like, whatever you say, I will go along with because... You're my alpha man. Right? Yeah, right? And I, love, <laughs> and I love that she's not, she pushes back against him. He gets alpha and she's, she gives him snarky responses. She stands up and asserts herself. Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or the one part where they're in the hotel and she's like, yeah, so much for being a feminist, right? Right. You know, she just kind of pokes back at him. And I enjoyed that. What are your thoughts on Michael? I, this whole time I'm reading these first five chapters, which is what we were reading for today, and I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear what Eddie's thoughts on Michael are. I can't wait to hear her thoughts on this relationship. Yeah. Um, well, he's a little overprotective, especially in those first five chapters where he insinuates himself into this trip, and he's and Dimitri's there. And you're not sure whether at this point, because if I haven't read the first book, which I haven't, I thought this one was the first book in the series. So that's really interesting. I have to go back. Um, but the um, you kind of get the feeling that uh, Dimitri is supposed to be the love interest in those first few chapters. You know, that, that and especially because of the flashback Catherine the Green, and Dimitri's the direct descendant there. And so you think, oh, the Grisha were in love, and then and the descendant of the Romanovs in love, and you kind of think that, and then suddenly Michael's in the scene. Oh, well, but you know, wait, but he lied to her, but yet he says he did it to protect her. But okay, and so there's this whole thing. But again, back to that president. I think that scene in the president's class of the air, air, um, airplane is so critical for all their characters. Mm -hmm. He comes up. He kind of insinuates himself in there to where he wasn't invited, you know, and yeah. he's just like, I'm going yeah. to be here. And it's like, oh, oh, okay. So he's not afraid to break protocol where he thinks, you know, something that might need, so like he needs to protect her, or he just needs to be able to do his job just mm -hmm. in case. So, and he actually shows that. He kind of demonstrates that, you know, I'm not here to interrupt. I'm not here to take charge of this 
bodyguard, so I'm going to be where I can see you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh. So then I got all intrigued. And so I'm like, I've, I've read to like chapter 13 so far. So, and so then, yeah, we go through the thing in the hotel and it's just, he, he, he baffles me. At one time I'm like, he's so pushy and like pushing himself into all these situations. But then it's like, quickly try to imagine if I was a famous person that somebody might try to hurt and I had a bodyguard. Well, that's actually the behavior of what a bodyguard is. That's what the mm -hmm. Secret Service does for the president, for example. And that's, mm -hmm. so when you take away the job and you take away the behaviors that can be explained because he's a bodyguard in the job, then what you're left with is this really intriguing enigma of a man. Mm -hmm. So he feels to me right now like somebody I want to crack open. I want to know what makes him tick. You know? <laughs> I have to say, he's one of those literary characters that I kind of have a crush on. I have a crush on his character. I really like his character that much where I'm like, I, I, have, I have a little bit of a crush on him. And he, yeah, he's an enigma. He's, and it's a curiosity factor too that I think I have. What goes on in his mind? What's going on in his inner workings in his head when she's doing all this stuff and he can't beat her because I've read up to chapter seven. Okay. Uh, so far. And yeah, I'm like, I'm really curious as to what goes on. And he's a strong character in and of himself. So when we have, we have a mutual friend, Antonia, she's going to be on two weeks from now as my co-host. Ah, fantastic. Yes. And Antonia has a thing where she, she, the books live or die on how well the, the secondary characters are created. Yeah, right. And how well they are. <laughs> so I think Michael might pass your test. I think Dimitri might pass your test. And this is one thing I wanted to bring up to you when we were talking about Dimitri. I think he's gay. I think so too. I think so too. But that's also why he, it sounds funny, but why he come, came across the potential love interest. Because oftentimes, let's be honest, in historical romances, he's gay. Mm-hmm. You know, gay. I mean, if you look at, even when you go back to the classics, and if you look at Darcy, mm -hmm. and you make him a closeted gay man. Are you going to have a present for me? Am I never going to be able to look at Mr. Darcy the same way again? <laughs> he was a closeted gay man who was frustrated by society because he had to remain closeted because society wouldn't accept him. Make perfect sense. So does his ad admiration because Elizabeth is a very manly sort of woman she doesn't act does so Darcy's admiration of her completely so the only thing that makes Darcy not gay is the proposal and the kiss at the end right <laughs> and this is why I have Eddie on because she brings up <laughs> totally other things I did not think about before <laughs> like, she wrote an 80s pop song for me, and I can never, every time it comes on the radio, um, I can never listen to it. It's the uh, More Than Words song for everybody else who's out there, and we're going to oh. ruin it for you, too. If you listen to the More Than Words, it sounds like a guy pushing, pushing a girl to have sex with him. <laughs> more Than Words by Extreme is, don't tell me you love me, that's not good enough. You have to give me sex to prove that you love me. That's exactly. it. That's exactly what it's pressuring. He's being a dick. A total yes, dick. And now <laughs> time. From I watch this, I'm going to be like, wow, he is a closeted gay man, and I really feel bad for him that he can't come out and be himself. It's horrible because Darcy is portrayed as the most masculine of men. He is, yeah, that perfect English gentleman that all the girls swoon over. But he's totally gay. <laughs> Yeah, and and go figure. All we all, all the women, we all love our okay men. They're the best friends out there. They're some of the best people in the whole wide world. Why romance books use that sort of character to be the lead? Mm -hmm. Is because they're still masculine, but they're not threatening to the femininity. And this is something because so many men in our real life are threatening. Mm -hmm. so, in our fiction, we make sure that we write men that are not going to be threatening. Males, which I find irritating as well. Even alpha males are truly not threatening. Yeah, when you look at a lot of the alpha males in there, there's um, there's very few. I think Patricia Briggs writes some um, 
threatening um, males, alpha males, to the femininity. And she, and one of the things that goes well for her books, the Mercy Thompson books and the Alpha and Omega books, is she also explores the sexuality and the, what is femininity. Her in the Mercy Thompson books, Mercy is she is not feminine at all, really. She's a tomboy. She's as tough as the other werewolves out there, even though she is a tricky coyote. Yeah. So, but yeah, in a lot of them, you have, they don't challenge that femininity. They don't, they're not true, you know, awful guys, yeah. as you would consider. Well, and the thing is, again, part of it is because, as we talked about at the beginning, we really don't have a safe space in literature where women are allowed to exist without mm -hmm. men where we're allowed to exist as independent people, but our lives, we now have women who choose to have careers and not get married until their 30s. Mm -hmm. Follow literature, that would mean that they didn't have a life anywhere in their 20s, that nothing really happened. Yeah. But that's not true. And so our lives have moved on, our conceptualization of self, but I don't think literature has quite caught up. No, no, and you have either that, you know, there's no identity, no past before, you know, those, that 30 something time period. And if you do have something that's early onset, it's like, that's one of the problems I've had with uh, young adult fiction is they're 16 years old and they find their soulmate for the rest of their life. I'm sorry, it does not work that way. And that was one of the major frustrating things where they're 16 years old and they get their whole life figured out. And I'm well, like, yeah. and I'm the thing is, seven. As someone who did meet my soulmate at age 17, I happen to know how very, very rare that, that is. The problem is what happens is they've kind of held up relationships like my husband's and mine and went, see, this is the thing. This but is the normal. You should find that guy a, when you're 17. If you haven't found him when you're 17, your life is over. What a false thing. It's like, like one step of human humanity can find that and make that work. I found, and, I found Ryan when I was 20. I was 20, almost 21 when we met. Which is and still very rare. 14 years. Yeah, and, we, and we've been together for 14 years. And Michelle and her husband have been together for but, one and a half, three years now? So, I mean, it, it all varies, you know, and you have this. Yeah, yeah and, and when and you I find them, you don't. And yeah, the whole and thing I think having their shit together that bugs me. That's the other half of young adult that bugs me. Is when you're seventeen, you don't have your life figured out. I am thirty six years old. I barely just figured out what I want to do in my life. And, and I bring I'm a loser. And if you think you have your shit figured out at seventeen, you don't. Yeah. I mean, I was a mess. I was lucky oh, enough. Oh my god. I was lucky enough that the man I met was willing to be a mess with me, and we basically spent our 20s being a mess together, to stay together <laughs> through that until we got our shit together, you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, and so that's something that's really interesting. Well, you know, you had mentioned that we could talk about um, our, our other favorite, like, uh, books about royalty or royal family. Yes, I'm looking at, yeah, for, I want to hear what your book favorite, you did, Books on monarchies? So I did my favorite kind of uh, portrayals of royalty in a variety of books. Okay. So I did something a little bit different. This is always fun when sometimes Michelle and I, this happens with us where we were like, okay, this is our topic. And she goes one way with the topic and I go a completely different way. <laughs> so I That's think a weird thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So I went ahead and I went and looked at actual monarchies beyond the tutors. To look at in history right. and in literature so that's the way I went with it and you went with the book round so this is gonna be fun. I totally so I didn't start with your list I totally need to <laughs> go for historical so I went for total fictional or at least read it in a major fictional okay. way well okay. um, my favorite one of my favorite royal families are the Pevensies from the Narnia Chronicles Ooh, yes the children that walk through the wardrobe and become kings and queens. Um, how many times, how many mm -hmm. times as a child did you imagine that suddenly you'd find out that you were a queen of some foreign land, you know, and that you had magical powers or whatever? Yes. 
And so in the Narnia mm-hmm. books, it's a family of four that get to do that. And they get to rule as equal. The boys and the girls rule as equal in Narnia, which is really cool and really way ahead of its time. Love um, so the next one on my list is the Lunar Chronicle. Ooh, I have yet to read that. That's one I've heard so many good things about that I just, it's been on my radar. I haven't picked it up. You must, you must, you must. They've imagined a a future Earth where the Earth has broken into six major commonwealths that each one have either a president, a prime minister, or, or a king. And the Lunar Chronicles begin with Cinder in the... So Asia, and you have emperor, um, you have an emperor, and the prince that you meet at the beginning who meets Cinder, Cinderella, becomes the emperor of the Asian Chronicles, and, and he is wonderful, Prince Kaito. He's a diplomat, and he's a good politician, and a teenage boy. That kind of combination is really fantastic, but then that's set against a moon, where a people has grown to exist who have the ability to manipulate your mind. Like, enter your mind and tell you, you think I'm the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And you'll go, oh my God, you're so beautiful. And the moon is attacking Earth, basically. So you have the evil queen in the moon, and then she plays out all the famous fairy tales. So you have Cinderella, you have Little Red Riding Hood, you have Rapunzel, and you have Snow White, hmm. the four books. And each of those she plays as a character. For Little Red Riding Hood, the lunars have taken to doing genetic manipulation and crossing human genes with wolf genes to create super soldiers with the teeth and the jaws of wolves and the claws of wolves and they're human. Vicious, like attack humans. And Hood meets the wolf, the things. So this idea of a monarchy as a power struggle, she does that extremely well in those books. Another, when I thought of that as a monarchy of, of a power struggle, I had to go to the Graceling series by Christian Kishore. And the latest one of those is Bitter Blue. And the Graceling series is a series of kingdoms with each of them with their own kings. And the characters in the book are pawns in the power plays of the kingdoms. And so this is really fantastic that you can kind of see how you can imagine global politics in Europe, for example, in the 1700s and how all the kings were moving all their pieces and doing everything. But you get it on a very visceral, personal basis in a fantasy book. Um, Favorite all-time has to say royal families tradition has to come out of stardust by neil gaiman a royal family that decides that the the um uh succession based on who is still living or yeah who's the youngest which is such a, a, a crazy concept that the youngest be the ruler yeah, who kills who, and you know that, and so that's fantastically delightful. Um, then uh, one that um, actually I'm kind of obsessing lately about Russian. So reading the the Tsarina's Daughter is a fantastic thing right now because series by Leia Bardugo introduced me to Russian folklore, and the Lastov and the King of Ravka in the Grisha series are fantastic. And of course the Darkling who sets himself up as a monarch, even though he's not royal blood, but he's Mm -hmm. planning to come over and take over the throne. And this is all set in um, with Russian uh, fairy tales and symbolism and magic thrown through. And that one is fantastic. And then that made me think of Jay Kristoff's The Lotus War, which is kind of the same thing, but it's in Japan. And so you have an emperor that, um, let's see, I have to read my, uh, Kazumatsu's, the Kazumatsu emperor, and then his son and his daughter. 
And again, the main character is not one of the royalties, but actually someone who's being manipulated by and used as a tool by. And the exciting thing there is there's a usurpation of the throne because the, um, the emperors used to ride what they call thunder tigers or griffins. And the official story is that griffins had died out 300 years before. There were no more griffins, but there have been sightings. So the emperor sends the main character's father to find a griffin and bring him a griffin. What happens instead is that the daughter gets uh, thrown from the, the, the ship that is flying to get the griffin. She gets thrown from it. She meets the griffin first, and they bond. And now the mm. griffin will only allow her to ride, and she's just a commoner. <laughs> and so, but in a land where power is given to the griffin, they call them the storm dancers. The, yeah. the emperor who yeah. rides the griffin is a storm dancer, and now there's this commoner who's doing it, so it upends the monarchy, and it changes everything, and that's fantastic. See, this and is then everybody, I have one... this is everybody. Yeah? Michelle always tells me. She wants to, she, this is this where is she gets her book. idea for the book. But for me, I listen to your list, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to add this to my list, and I have to add this to my list, and I'm going to have to make sure Michelle and I read this book. So, yeah, and to keep notes because I know you're going to give me that same thing. Yes, so I, I have, and you have to give me this list because I'm also going to share with everybody else because I have a feeling that everybody who's listening and watching are going to want to have your list as well. Fantastic. So, I have one more fictional <laughs> um, king, and then I have two real. So, um, the Raven King, fascinating feature to me of Welsh. Um, folklore. It's the closest you can kind of come is the king of the fairies, but the Raven King is his own thing. He's independent of the fairy kingdoms. He's independent of all of the other magical creatures, but he also rules over all of them. And it's, it's kind of really strange. You only really understand if you're Welsh to, to rule over something that you're in no way related to. But there's two places where the Raven King gets treated amazingly, interestingly well. The first is in Maggie Stipe Vader's The Raven Cycle. Starts with the Raven Boys. Okay. Um, that's a modern day um, case of a group of like rich boys at a boarding school. One of them is obsessed with the Raven King and he believes the Raven King had traveled to America if he finds the bones of the Raven King, that he can resurrect him. So the whole book is this massive quest to find the Raven King, but it's set in, in modern times. And that's really interesting to see that juxtaposition of this very old sort of Celtic mythic belief to modern boarding school boys. Mm -hmm. Then the other one is in the book Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is set in England. There's a fantastic television series that was built off this book. It is amazing. Watch it. You, you will binge it in a week. Incredible. Okay. Um, okay. Is a theme all through this. Um, it's basically in the Napoleonic time. And the idea that magic long ago left England, leave England, it went dormant. And two magicians come back to bring magic back into prominence. So they have battles in the Napoleonic Wars. Like the Duke of Wellington is using magic against Napoleon. It's amazing. <laughs> um, oh, it yeah, but the Raven King is the key to everything in that story, and, and they, they bring everything together at the last with the Raven King, so that is fantastic. And that's the idea of monarch as the blood of the land, that a lot of monarchies through history have said is that they are of the land and for the land, for the people, that, they, that it's not that they wish to be kings or that it's being rich or that it's all of the things that come along with it, but rather that their job are for the people and to represent. And the Raven King is like the most raw form of that. So that's really fantastic. Two 
sets of books that deal with real monarchs. Um, you and I have talked about this much before, but the Outlander series and yes. the Stuarts. I was going to say, the Stuarts are actually on my list as well, because I love the Stuart. You know, you don't hear about the Stuart monarchy anymore. They're overshadowed at all, uh, outside of, you know, Outlander, because they're really overshadowed by the Tudors. Whenever you see stuff in literature, it's all about the Tudors, not about the Stuart monarchy, which is kind of going on. It's English propaganda, and here's a nice little trivi trivia pursuit fact. It goes back to Henry VIII and James IV. So James IV of Scotland was an alchemist, a philosopher. He spoke seven languages fluently, meaning he could read and write in seven different languages. He was a cutting-edge mathematician. His work laid the groundwork for 300 years later algorithms that were also... I mean, he was... He could play six instruments, he could dance, he could sing, he composed plays. He was a the man. And he married Henry married Henry VIII's older sister Margaret. I remember and that. This part. is how James the first eventually became the the heir to Elizabeth is because that was the connection. So Henry VIII's older sister marries into Scotland. The grandfather or the grandson of that relationship is the king that becomes James the Sixth of England. So anyway, that's English could not stand that James was more accomplished than Henry. So they went on this huge offensive to like advertise how great Henry the Eighth was and to minimize anything about James the Fourth. So there we go. History was rewritten by the Tudors. Um, and my last uh, um, absolutely obsessed me for years, and you really couldn't, or real monarchs in any way, without dealing with the court of the Sun King, Louis the Fourteenth. And yes. Yes. I was young, um, starting when I was maybe thirteen or fourteen, I was introduced to these books by a French author, Serge Angolan. They are the Angelique series. And Angelique is the original award of a minor noble, you know. So I was a bastard child who was adopted as a ward of a minor noble. And I was a chambermaid, and I worked my way up, and eventually I was mistress to the king. <laughs> she goes on and she and she ends up in the Americas and she's just that kind of character where every book and it is pure pulp joyous <laughs> wonderful pulp and the author um, was actually a French history teacher her knowledge of the court of the Sun King and Versailles and the inner workings is impeccable and so when Angelique is at court and you meet the Comte Saint-Germain, who you also meet in Outlander, um, you meet the Comte Saint-Germain and you get to know all about his um, occult practices and everything. It's fantastic, amazing stuff. So um, anyway, so that's my whole list. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had uh, the Sun Kings um on my list as well for a monarchy to look at because of the second book of Outlander where you get to see him in there because it's really a fascinating and in the TV show did they not do the sun the sun where they do the trial of the Comte Saint Germain <sighs> I know <laughs> <laughs> you did such a good job with that. Oh, such a good job with the whole series, and the second season was just fantastic, really. And in fact, in, in addition to the Sun King, I also had uh, King Louis the Fifteenth. I find his mm -hmm. monarchy fascinating because there's like the debauchery of it, and the you know he's trying to live up to the king before him. And I read this great, um, there's this really good book called uh, The Sisters of Versailles. Where he goes through three out of four sisters, um, yeah. one after another, at pretty much as his, and it was fascinating. 
and I found him fascinating and the whole idea of all of this so fascinating um, so I think he was a really good one to look at and yeah so I'm taking as you can tell I'm taking my list of authors or I'm sorry of monarchies um, from the great literature that they inspire yeah um, is Romanov's uh, Russian culture and Russian literature in general I have a bit of a fascination for um, yes, so that threw me originally to um, the Secret Daughter of the Tsar, which uh, that's a series I think you, a book that you would love too. The first one in the Tsarina's Legacy, you would really like that one um, because in that one Jennifer looks at um, this fifth daughter after Anastasia. There's another daughter who's born who's smuggled out of uh, Russia, and this is where um, Veronica is descended from. So and right. it's this whole right. almost like Da Vinci Code esque, but better because like she knows her history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I love the Romanovs. And I was there's actually a series on Netflix right now, um, the Legends of the Czars, or the something about the Czars. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Um, but it it goes through the history of their own. Um, the Romanovs and how they still had feudalism and feudalism was still a big deal there. And it's such a fascinating monarchy. And you have, there's another book that I recently read um, called Who's to Blame? I was uh -huh. looking to see if I had it up there, but I don't. And it has like, every chapter starts off with a riddle and you've got one character who is in the serfs, who her, her life and her story goes through the, the whole book and it's, her struggles as being a serf, and then you've got another character who goes through his life. He finds himself, they started off together, but he finds himself with the aristocracy and working with the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. And this, these two families, their whole lives for this whole thing. So I found that, you know, really fascinating just the way they set up their society and stuff. Um, and not the next two, though, I don't know if Medici's are technically royalty or not. They kind of are. I guess you could say that they are. Uh, but the Borgia are monarchies. That in and of themselves, you got to say that they're monarchies, even though you know you got the Pope. They pretty much are monarchs. In yes. The way you got yes. Lucrezia Borgia. Yeah, within Florence. Yeah, and and that. Oh, yeah. Um, the Borgia or the uh, was the Pope? So and this really was Florence, but yeah, she. The Medici's who are in Florence. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yes. She's in Florence. Yeah, I remember when I was really into the Tudors. My dad was like, no, 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 no. You've got to go and read the Medici's about them because they would put yeah. the Tudors to shame. Yeah. Yes. Look at them, and they do. And you have, during Mary, Queen of Scots, her mother-in-law was a Medici. And that was, she was a cold woman. She had a fierce reputation. Yes. And then, yes. And then you have the Borgia, and you know the literature that they inspired. There was that series that they did, what I, which I actually kind of liked. And then um, there, they've done. A, there's been a couple books, and there's books that involved Lucrezia, who I think is one of the most misunderstood women in all of history. She's definitely within right? that top twenty. Yeah, and because she, she was her dad's, her dad's play toy. I mean, can you imagine your dad saying, "Okay, I'm going to have you marry this guy now, and you're going to go seduce this guy now." Yeah. That's so weird. It's kind of creepy. It is really and creepy. <laughs> yes. And it was just, it's fascinating looking at it. So I read a couple books. I looked at it from different angles. In addition to watching the series, there was um, Bride, which was, um, there was one where this girl, she actually marries the younger, the, it was, uh, the wife of the youngest Portia. Um, she's actually a princess from Naples. She marries the youngest of the Borgia clan, and it was interesting looking at it from there because she actually had a romantic relationship with, um, oh, the second oldest whose name I'm completely blanking on. Um, I want to say Don Juan, but I don't think that's right. Um, but she has the one that's known for being the um, ladies' man. Right. She has a relationship with him before he becomes a ladies' man, and when she says, no, I will not leave your brother for you, that's when he becomes a man whore, to put it bluntly. Yeah, that's and that so is Yeah, and it was interesting in that. And then there was another one from the perspective of one of his actual um, 
his actual uh, women. It was a Jew looking at the uh, Jewish play in Italy of that time, and it was a Jewish girl who understood becomes one of his mistresses. Mm -hmm. And looking at the Jewish culture during the time of the Borgia and what it was like to live in Rome at that time, and it was just fascinating. Um, the whole look and how, like, he had um, some sort of STD, I forget which one it was, I want to say, whatever it was, it left her a rash in her lady bits. And she, he liked, and as she put, the character put it, he liked to mark his women. And that's how he marked them. So, <laughs> yeah. It, it, no. it's <laughs> I know. <laughs> creepy alert, creepy alert. Um, so, yeah, those are two really fascinating families that go well beyond the drama that you get with the tutors. Um, and then, of course, I moved down into Egypt. And some of the strongest, most interesting women, um, um, you have Cleopatra, which there have been all kinds of books about her, and a Shakespearean play. And then one that you yeah. don't really see too much literature on is Nefertiti. Yeah. I think there needs to be some more books on Nefertiti. So if anybody's out there who needs an idea about a book, you need to write about Nefertiti. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you got to make her strong and awesome and... And the only, you can't be that the only thing cool about her is that she's beautiful. Yeah, no, because there's know. so many different things about her that, that would make such great literature where there's, there's this whole theory that she didn't actually die when they think she did, that she actually just ended up, like, changing her gender and becoming a man and ruling as a Whoa. man. There's First whole theory person in history. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating theory, and um, she was just such a strong, liberated character in history that, you know, there needs to be books about, there, about her in this, and she's a yeah. fascinating monarch. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. The difference between uh, monarchs in feudal systems, as you mentioned with the Romanovs, and um, as compared to monarchs in um, either democratic systems or republic systems, so the French. Mm -hmm. um, by the time you got to the Sun King, they were leaving the feudal age and moving into a republican age where um, rather than having peasant farmers, you had merchants. You know, and that's kind of that defining thing where, mm -hmm. uh, where um, a society changes from feudalism into republicanism or other forms of government is when farmers become merchants. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to see the differences between the types of monarchies. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think that monarchies of, over feudal states are easier. Oh, yeah. Or monolithic. The problem mm -hmm. with monarchies over merchants is we have what we have with our government here in the United States is that we admire and encourage people to get rich and we have no method of policing when a rich person is an asshole. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there's no way to get a rich person to live up to civic duty. Mm -hmm. He isn't, you know, unless you want to go, you know, into punitive taxes or other such things, but even that is only successful, really, like, the Stuarts were pretty good at punitive taxes, mm -hmm. are pretty good at punitive taxes, but, um, but really, punitive taxes only work so far until you have rebellion, aka the American Revolution, and then here we are, so even that is not a great method for bringing people in line, whereas in a feudal state, if the farmers are fed if they have a house to live in and they have food, they're generally pretty happy. Mm -hmm. The only merchants who they deserve to be really unhappy and agitate against. Mm -hmm. Kind of interesting how that falls. Sometimes I think it would be good to just have a benevolent dictator, you know? Yeah, I was, I was going to say, right now, I was like, well, Eddie, I do believe you are a monarchist. <laughs> Well, the thing is, with a benevolent dictator, with a monarchy, if you have a good, strong person at the head of the monarchy, the, 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 the country just runs better. Yeah. I would have loved to have been in the Obama monarchy. That would have been great. 
because you have the decider, right? <laughs> this is what Donald Trump calls himself. I am the decider. But our republic doesn't work that way. He doesn't get to decide. And in this case, thank God. But <laughs> the point is, there is probably no better system on earth than a benevolent monarchy. The problem is that generally a benevolent mm -hmm. king gives birth to some sort of little shit. Yeah. The case where Catherine the Great, where she gives birth, where she gives birth, the it's her grandson that ends up taking over, and he's actually pretty cool. Like I learned in that um, in that documentary series I was watching, her son's death was actually kind of comical, where he he's got this this little fortress that he kind of walls himself in, but his guards break in. And when they go to, into his room to to catch him, he's hiding behind a screen, the fireplace screen. Right. And they catch him because his feet are sticking out the bottom. <laughs> oh, and wait for it. It gets better. It's a hilarious <laughs> moment. Yeah, he gets over the head with a snuff box, and he dies from injuries from being hit in the head with a snuff box. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. I know, this is like, this it's like it's like Mary Queen of Scots Mary Queen of Scots husband Darnley mm -hmm. when they decided they were gonna kill Darnley they went into his bedroom to kill him he heard them coming he escaped out of his window and nothing but his shirt so he has no trousers on no underwear of course at that time because they didn't wear them so he has just this big billowing white shirt and he gets <laughs> into the backyard and he trips and he falls and he knocks himself insensible. So they're able to catch him and strangle him and kill him. And so literally the king of Scotland at this point is killed in his nightshirt. talking <laughs> for God's sake. Some of the greatest things happen like that. And I'm at the point of the book where where her son is introduced, you actually get to meet him, and because he's playing list with Brisha and Catherine, and um, it's hilarious because I'm like, I know how you're gonna die. You're a little shit, and it's gonna be hilarious. <laughs> Just you wait. <laughs> you think you're so smart and witty now? Don't go hiding behind any screens. Too funny. <laughs> think about books that are written about monarchies that change the history. Hmm. So I don't remember the name of it, and I really, I should have looked it up because it made me so angry, but there's a book about Henry VIII that um, Anne Boleyn doesn't die. And it's about how Anne Boleyn and Henry lived happily ever after. Really? Right? <laughs> Yeah, this is like an awesome thing, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But the okay. thing is, in order, to, but it was told as a historical romance. In order to make it plausible, they had to make Anne so milk toast. She was in no way Anne Boleyn. She had no ambition. So she was like his third wife. And what's that? So she was like his third wife. Right. Because that's what his third wife was. That's why he loved her so much, was because she was white bread. She was boring. She had no sense about her, no spice, and she was able to give him a son. And I wonder if that's actually what happened, is if this person was reading history and she somehow confused the names. Maybe. You know, but it, was, it was so strange. But it was just like, Anne Boleyn can't live happily ever after. That's not how it happened. No one lived happily ever after with Henry, frankly. <laughs> no. No, they did not. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm kind of picky. If you're going to have a historical monarchy, I want to know something that's there. And I want to ask you about mm -hmm. this book. Bother you? There's one thing that kind of bothers me, this idea of a secret fifth child that got taken away. That doesn't seem the Tsarina's uh -huh. M.O. Everything to her. And well, this, is, this is where the first book comes in. Yeah, because, and that's why I'm asking. 
Yeah. Okay. So what happens in the first book, um, cause obviously we're all in the second book. So spoilers. Um, in the first book, it's, um, the, the fifth daughter is the, um, Alexander and Alexandria's daughter. So she's Anastasia's younger sister. So yes. at this point in the story, she's had like, what, four or five, four daughters, one son mm-hmm. who's sickly. So there's no actual, um, and there's terrible pressure for her to have a, a male. And if you need to come in, honey, you can come in. If you need to get stuff, sorry, husband had to come in and get stuff, so. <laughs> hi, Ryan. Um, Eddie says hi. <laughs> so there's this incredible pressure for her to have a man, a male child, and so they, and the Bolsheviks are just, they're breathing down their throats. And so what happens is she has this child, and it's a girl. And they tell her the baby's dead. It was stillborn. And they let it out that she had a miscarriage. Because they figured it was better to say that she had a miscarriage than it was for her to have another daughter. Is what happens. And so they snuggle this daughter out of the country. uh, And they keep her in hiding. And then everything that goes down with the Bolsheviks going after that family happens. And then that okay. Has I, and I can and I can I can buy that because uh, for Mary Queen of Scots, there's always been a question um, because she had a baby that they said was a miscarriage. Uh-huh. They produced a dead baby, but the problem is the dead baby that, that was produced was probably about three months old, mm. and it was not a newborn, and okay. and nobody has ever. There was a baby skeleton found in the walls in Holyrood Palace, but the DNA says that it's not Mary's. Hmm. So there's some chance that there was a child that was taken away. But, okay, and I can, I can buy that, because I was having a hard time understanding why she would have sent away one of her children, because Alexandra was so enamored of her children. I mean, they spent more time with their children. The Romanovs spent more time with their children than any monarchy in all of European history. Yeah. Something that I'm going, really? Hmm. Yeah, but that's, I see, why, that's why I got sent away. It was, and in, this, in the first book, it was the grandmother's doing. It was her mother-in-law's doing that this had to be done for the sake of the monarchy, where she, she knew and she arranged it. And she arranged for the child to go into a good you know, home and, and whatnot. So it's, it, and that's really good. And that goes back to um, how Jennifer can create these really good sub characters for stories with other women. Because in that first book, she tells the story of three different women. You've got um, the maid who ends up smuggling the child out. You've got her right. story. And then you've got the, um, you've got this woman in Paris, France, who's a ballerina during World War II. And it's like, well, how does she fit in? And what's her story? And then you have Veronica's story. And so she tells the story of these three different women, and then they all merge in together as one at the end. And it's, and it's all really well done and really careful. But, yeah, that's how she, how she plays it out and puts it in there. Cool. Yeah. So is it next time that it's um, going to be with you and I need to be here and watch? it as you know an ambassador of slut cheering you guys on or <laughs> yeah next week we're going to be back on it um thursday day. thank you for coming on a front today with me because yesterday i ended up having the opportunity to go to an art show uh, i actually got to see a banksy original um at the art show it was this whole star wars art show yeah it was really cool um so yeah next week i'll be back at eight o'clock normal time normal bat time normal bat channel um, I'll actually have a comic creator on with me. Her name's Tanya Bjork, and she has this really great series called Havenhurst, which you'll have to check out. I think you'll really like, where you have a female lead, and um, it's kind of it's inspired by Harry Potter, and it's how do I put it? Um, she comes from a really bad place, and the mom's really messed up, and away and she's in our world but then ends up having to go back into this other world and it's it's a very dysfunctional family dysfunctional world and you have this one character who's really good 
and it's fun because you know you with Freya and your cat and you know having a cat she has these um pets that are like they're they call them demons and they're basically like flying cats and they're adorable cool. <laughs> and so so yeah next week she's going to be on we're going to talk um chapters five through ten technically of the book even though I might go on further because I think I'm already, yeah, I'm at chapter seven, possibly a little further. Um, <laughs> because Jennifer Lamb's books just, I don't know about you, Eddie, but they just suck me in. I'm like, okay, I'm yeah. going to read five chapters, only five chapters. I've got another book I've got to read and review. I'm going to set this down once I reach my five chapters, and here I am on chapter seven, which is chapter eight. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's why I'm on chapter 13. It was exactly that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just it just sucks you in, and it's so great in that regard. So we're going to be talking chapters five to ten, and we're also going to be talking about um, Tanya's series, plus what it's like to be a woman um, in the comic book world, or writing comics, because it's kind of a male dominated uh, industry. Yeah. So, yeah. Thoughts on that. And so Eddie, share with before we go, share with everybody uh, again the Sage and Savants uh, website where we yeah. can find so yeah, it's www.sageandsavant.com, all written out. And um, you can find the podcast on iTunes and on Google Play and on Podcast or anywhere that you get podcasts. Um, you can find it and download it, and the new episodes come out on the first of every month. Yes. Yeah, so I need to get caught up on, my, on that because I haven't oh, listened in a while. So I will get caught up on it. And for Wine, Women, and Words, you can find us here on YouTube every week as well as at podcast.com and at Google Play. And eventually, I promise, I will have us on iTunes. I just actually have to have my wallet and my laptop in the same place at the same time, which is a practice I never do. And at that point, I will be able to have my iTunes account set up so that we can actually have be on iTunes. But until that time, you can find us at podcast.com and at Podcast Republic and here on YouTube. So have a wonderful week. Thank you so much, Eddie. And I will put my list into the doobly-doo. Yes, email me your list too so that this way we can, I can post it on the website. Fantastic. So thank okay. you. Thank you for coming. And we'll see everybody. We must take in person soon. Yes, yes, we will. We definitely will. <laughs> Bye. Bye.